Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. If you're joining us this week, then you are tuning in to episode 206, Around the Bend. As always, we're going to start off with some Patreon shoutouts. So a huge thanks to our newest Patreon supporters. We have Stephanie W., Holly T., and Dan H. Yay! Thank you, thank you, thank you. And remember, we do have regular Patreon bonuses, audio clips, photos, videos, etc. for all of our fabulous patrons. Um, Deleted scenes probably going to be out today. And then I also have a quick, exciting announcement. So you may see some changes in our podcast feed this week, depending on which podcatcher you use. We have recently acquired the feature to sort by season. So I'm going to sort out season one versus season two, as well as the bonus episodes in their own sort of season category. And that may mark a bunch of episodes as new, but they're not actually new. They're just being resorted. So uh, hopefully that doesn't spam your feeds. I hate getting my, you know, feed all spammed out, but I appreciate your patience with that. And it will be very exciting for us because I do think some people get intimidated by the numbering. They think there's 200 episodes when there aren't. So that should help out everybody in finding the episodes they want and enjoying the podcast. And now for this week's summary. Pete struggles to protect his team with the help of an old flame. The regents make their presence known. And Claudia confronts the inherent dangers of her new profession. (laughs) Yes, I'm excited, but also I warned Jillian up front, this episode is very stressful for all the reasons described in her teaser summary. So we're going to get into that today. Yes, we we were both very stressed throughout the first time. (laughs) We have a lot of returning writers this season, which is thrilling to me. So instead of a brand new writer's appreciation, we're going to do a writer check-in with writer Bob Goodman. The last episode he wrote was the episode Implosion from season one. And we really love that episode for a lot of the reasons that I feel this episode also works. It moves, it gives us insight into the growth of the interpersonal relationships of the team, and it just really gets everyone's voices and characters and character flaws, and I really liked it. Uh, He has no new projects as of right now, but has recently wrapped up his gig on Elementary, which is no longer on the air, but ran for so, so many seasons. Jillian, I made a comparison to a specific episode of Elementary in this episode, and now I know why, and I'm so psyched about it. Also, we love, or I love Bob Goodman. He did that amazing piece, um, which we read from in our trailer when we first launched the podcast. It's called, like, why Warehouse 13 works, and he wrote it after the first season and in in the middle of the second season, and it's such a smart insight from a writer of Warehouse into why this crazy sci-fi fantasy show got so much recognition for being, like, clever and thoughtful and amazing and historical and all the things that it is. Yes, yes. So I'm so glad we checked in. I look forward to seeing Bob Goodman's name in the opening credits of another show very soon. Awesome. So should we jump in? Yes. Previously on Warehouse 13, we talked about heavy things involving Pete's struggles with alcohol, and we met the regents, in particular, Mr. Valda. So this episode proper begins at the British History Museum, 
not the British Museum, which for some reason the first time I watched it, I thought that. And now I'm like, no, they're in Illinois. <laughs> they're not at the British Museum. In Lakefield, Illinois, Micah and Pete are looking for an artifact. And Pete, like off screen right before we jumped in, seems to have figured out what the, the thing is. They say that a missing walking stick that causes earthquakes must be the source of recent pings and troubles. And Pete is just... I have compiled the list of all the things that he does and touches. Uh, while Micah is not handling it well, that Pete is probably right. Uh, she's <laughs> sort of pouting as he is being a huge dork. He makes a silly face by pressing his lips against the glass and blowing. He pretends to smoke an old pipe while wearing glasses, which are also things he shouldn't be touching. He plays with an ear horn thing that Miranda can tell you more about. Uh, he touches... <laughs> when I first watched this, I wrote, he touches an old device that I'm sure Miranda will recognize. A telegraph? It's a telegraph. Uh, <laughs> it's a key and sounder. Yes. And there is a no-touching sign literally right next to it at that point. And while he is playing with the telegraph, he says, newsflash, stop. Bearing to admit she was wrong. Stop. Pig standing by for maiden flight. Stop. Which I did not do well, but he did in a great transatlantic accent. So if you ever watch old movies and wonder, why do people talk like that? And why don't they talk like that any anymore? It was an actual thing called a transatlantic accent that the way I always learned it was Hollywood just invented to make American accents more palatable worldwide. <laughs> So that the movies would do better. But nobody ever really talked like that. So now you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think I learned it as halfway between a British accent and an American accent. Mm -hmm. Let's dive into a few more of those artifacts. I was super psyched about um, the ear trumpet. And so this was a real obsolete media technology in not only the 19th century, but centuries before that, for people who were hard of hearing. So it's like a hearing aid, except just like literally a reverse trumpet. And I am not a scientist on like aurology, but I don't know how well it works. So I can't explain that, but I think it worked at least a little. And the reason I know that is because I write about a woman named Harriet Martineau. She is who we call a uh, the the first known female sociologist in like Western European and British culture. Heck yeah. She was a woman. She was hard of hearing and she went around the world and just interviewed people from a very progressive, like feminist standpoint and just wrote down her adventures and published them in a way that like was unprecedented for women. Cause she was like a single woman traveling and just being like, yeah, I'm going to show up to, uh, she went to America and interviewed a bunch of people and, and then brought that back to Britain. And she also spent a lot of time working with people with disabilities. So that's what part of my dissertation is on. And she went to American schools for blind children and deaf children and was like, here's how other countries are helping their, you know, populations with disability. And so while doing all of this amazing stuff, she was also dealing with her own, uh, you know, level of disability. And I think she's a fabulous person. And this little scene allowed me to talk about her for five minutes. 
That's awesome. I literally cannot wait to read your dissertation. Everything you tell me about it sounds fascinating. <laughs> no one ever. But well, I'm your best friend, and I think everything you do is brilliant. Um, so off of that little bit of information Miranda shared with us, we go back to Pete being a huge dork. Uh, <laughs> Micah points out the do not touch signs everywhere, to which Pete responds that ignoring velvet ropes is his new favorite job perk. <laughs> they hide as what appears to be a security guard approaches, but is not a security guard. It is, in fact, someone named J.P. Manu. I will share that in the show notes and when we publish this episode on Twitter, because I'm not sure I pronounced that right, but I did my best. He plays the character Lenny Malone, and he's that, that guy, guy you, you see know, that in guy, everything. That character we've all seen in everything. I'm going to talk about him in this week's actor spotlight Jillian can you see my notes can I (laughs) that guy (laughs) so let me read aloud what I said and I'm gonna play it on the audio right after what Jillian said that is almost verbatim what Jillian wrote down (laughs) best friends um so my brain immediately saw him in a bellman hat and like a red costume with like a bellman hat on <laughs> with like a smile and I was like why is this what I'm seeing and I went to his page and I realized that what I recognize him from is as the bellman from Angel. Yes I thought for a second he was the bellman from the sweet life of Zack and Cody which he totally isn't but that was because he is in Phil of the Future and all of my Disney lines just got crossed. And the funny thing was, as I was reading through his IMDb credits, which I will get to, I did recognize that he was in each of the things listed, but my brain was like, I can see him in that and that's not the thing. I can see him in that and that's not the thing. Like my brain was like, no, 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 what do you do? And it was just like this one episode one time. (laughs) I don't even know if he spoke. (laughs) He probably did. Um, But some other amazing things he's been in are Smallville, Charmed, Scrubs, Community. He was in several episodes of ER Miranda pointed out Phil of the future. He's also been in Grey's Anatomy, Shameless, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Veep. I think a few episodes of Veep. Another thing that I recognized him from, in How I Met Your Mother, he was the guy who wasn't Moby, but everyone was convinced was Moby. I remember that episode. Yes. So that's great. He's so funny. I would love to have actors like this on our show at some point because he's just around and he's clearly working so hard in this industry and making a mark but he's just for whatever reason we don't know his name so memorize it jp manu assuming i pronounced it right finally at the end of this little spotlight i'm doing i found out that he was a writer for some shows including the wayne brady show but also (laughs) this delights me so much He wrote for a video game, I kid you not, that came out in 1998 called Microshaft Windblows 98. It's a 1998 interactive comedy video game for Windows and the classic Mac OS. It parodies Windows 95. Bizarre. I don't even know what that, what that. So yeah, I guess a bunch of stand-up comedians got together (laughs) to write 
a Windows 95 parody as if they were Windows 98. I just can't understand that that exists, but it does. And that concludes this highly surprising actor spotlight. So before we move away from the scene that introduces us to not Moby, that guy, J.P. Manu, um, I wanted to point out that as we get the shots that introduce him, we can see the background of the museum. And because, you know, I used to work in a special collection and I care a lot about layouts of museum and exhibits, I'm like, how'd you lay out your museum? Why is there this Elizabethan era dress? amidst the Victorian media technologies. That's actually my only criticism because in the other background shot that first introduces J.P. Manu's character, it seems to be a very well laid out maritime exhibit. So there is a big um, steering wheel of a ship. There is a big uh, propeller of an old boat. And that's kind of leading in towards the media technologies which when we get to our artifact expert makes perfect sense because they're all sort of British tools of empire. But also in terms <laughs> of tools of British expansion, Queen Elizabeth, quite expansionist, if you ask me. Um, That's true. Who, who am I to sort things chronologically when you could just as well sort them thematically? <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> so, yes. Um, so they are hiding from this unnamed dude who they realize has the walking stick um, as he is trying to, I guess, put it back in its case when it's not in use. So I believe he does work at the museum and has keys and is just like, I want to create earthquakes sometimes for some unknown reason. And while he's putting it back, he spots Pete and Micah in the reflection and turns around and uses the stick so pete was definitely right it it's the stick that creates earthquakes and an axe almost beheads micah very scary um they get out of the way in time they are ready to get up and go after him micah goes one way and quickly gets cut off by security guards she shows them her badge and is like i'm a secret service blah 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 and doesn't end up working she doesn't have time to actually go through that rigmarole so she just like, ah, and she goes running. I and loved Pete it. also goes running. Um, and that's the camera we follow as he is hot on the thief's trail. He runs outside and cue music, Miranda. Mrs. Frederick yes! drives up. <laughs> so you know it's going to be a good episode. <laughs> I love that music cue I found. I don't know if it was what you hoped and dreamed of. But it's I everything. Really, really felt it. It's so correct. It's how I feel every time I see her. Um, <laughs> so she pulls up in a limo, rolls down her window from the back seat. Of course, she would never drive herself. And she tells Pete to throw the mission, let the artifact get away, and to not tell Artie or Micah. Pete agrees, but is extremely unhappy about it. And I get it, because he's a Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. And when you're in the armed forces, you follow orders. You don't have to always know 100% of what your commanding officer is doing. Obviously, there's a long, frustrating and hard history with the phrase, I'm just following orders, but he has no reason to distrust her or believe that this could lead to anything bad. So he's just 
put in the cruddy position of having to lie to the people who he cares most about, which at the same time is directly at odds with his identity as a Marine and a Secret Service person. He works in a team. He serves his team. There's a reason he's in the Secret Service and not the CIA or the NSA. He's not into spycraft or secrets or intrigue. I'm sure he likes the idea of being James Bond, but (laughs) he doesn't really want that kind of complicated life. He wants to find the artifact and get it. He wants to protect the president. Like, it's not that Pete couldn't keep secrets. I think he doesn't, he, he doesn't probably feel that that's his strong suit, but he could, but like, he doesn't want to, like he, he is a loyal, trusting, like he trusts you, you trust him. He's got your back. Like that's, yeah, that's part of the camaraderie of serving in law enforcement or serving in the armed forces, like you said. So it's really stressful and we don't have time for the explanation because opening credits dance. I know we got there so quick. I remember the last time Bob Goodman wrote an episode again that was implosion. We commented on this before. He does a really tight introduction. He knows how to make it fast. Before we move on to act two I just want to point out I I noticed something I hadn't really like thought about. I, I know I've seen it before but they show the moon landing in the opening credits which like the more I think about it the more I'm like yeah of course there was an art that's a huge momentous occasion of course it created an artifact but they show it specifically when they put the flagpole on the moon so what i'm saying is there's just an artifact hanging out on the moon and it's the flagpole Woo-hoo! so after the commercial break additional law enforcement come into the museum uh, where pete and micah are waiting and there is a well-dressed attractive woman who immediately confirms that they are secret service So the important thing is that she makes this joke, which clearly suggests that she is an old flame of Pete's. Um, She says that her name is Kate Logan, and she's from the Chicago field office. And we get an immediate sense that she knows Pete very well and, like, knows many elements of his personality, including his sort of, like, days of being a, what's the word? Playboy. There, there are people of all genders and orientations who are just playing the field, having multiple relationships and being, uh, like, clear about that. And Kate is also this way. Kate is sort of like, yeah, call the, well, we'll get there. But this leads me to my actor's spotlight. Yeah. So this woman, she is Tia Carrera, uh, an actress, Grammy Award-winning singer, and former model. So she got her start in acting from playing the series regular Jade Soong in General Hospital. And she has also played many well-known characters, including Cassandra in Wayne's World, Sydney Fox in the series Relic Hunter, Cha-Cha in Curb Your Enthusiasm, and currently you can see her opposite of RuPaul as Lady Danger in the Netflix series AJ and the Queen. Tia Carrera has also done voice acting Best known, I would say, among our generation for voicing Nani in Lilo and Stitch. Ah! And then in all of the Lilo and Stitch uh, spinoffs and follow-ups, she continues to play that voice. I love it. From our childhood, voiced many female voices in Johnny Bravo. Which, like, (laughs) why did that show exist? Like, I loved that show, and it was just about a man, like, 
hitting on women. It was I hated not... that show. I was like, what's the point of this show? She also did voices in a uh, more recent version of Scooby-Doo. And she did a series called Duck Dodgers, which seems to have a lot of love, although I am not personally familiar with it. So lots of credits to Grammys, like I said, singing is her real passion. And she was born and raised in Honolulu and is of Chinese, Filipino, and Spanish descent. So fun fact of the day, much like our friend Eddie McClintock, in the year 2001, she was ranked 69 in Sexiest Woman in the World. That's amazing. That is my actor's spotlight. I think her cheekbones are phenomenal, and she does a great job in this episode. I initially described her as hot lady, so I am inclined to agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have, just jumping back in to where we left off, uh, there is a great exchange between her and Pete, and also a great exchange between her and Micah. So the the exchange that gives us a hint of her background with Pete is she says I'm you I'm used to helping you and your ladies out of trouble when you're naked did I get you too early or too late and he responds I've matured I get arrested in my pants all the time now which I think is a great <laughs> thing for him to say he neither of them have any shame about their uh, I don't know how to say it I'm too demi for this um sexual freedom yeah, they're both sort of open about relationships and yeah. not being committed to one person. And that's great, and that's fine. We need liberation in our society. We don't have enough of it. And I think especially if you're not looking to settle down or you're not the type of person who wants certain things, play the field. Live your life. Yeah. <laughs> I also had a super queer reading of this scene for Micah. She really likes when men are compared to Neanderthals and it endears her to the woman who makes that comparison just every time. You're right. So Kate jokes, hey, I can just vouch for you, Micah, and we can leave Pete in the early man exhibit. And Micah gives her some eyes, like, and then just goes, I like her. And I'm like, I think you like her, Micah. <laughs> I love that you made the connection because I had I had copied out I like her because I was like, oh, we know what you mean by you like her, Micah. Like, I have mixed feelings about it. Like, the bad, wrong stereotype of, like, queer women just dislike men is, like, not where I want to go. If you're, you know, by your pan and you sometimes get frustrated with men, like... Especially, it's, like, it's usually in reference to Pete, to be fair. It's not, like, a long thing she's saying about men. She's describing certain terrible men as Neanderthals, like McPherson, or she's describing goofy behavior as Neanderthal behavior, like Pete blowing against the glass like you do when you're seven. Yes, and put a pin in this for later when Kate says, well, he could be making out with you, and Micah's like, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> like that, no, he's not making out with me, it's you. Not even an option, not even like a, oh gosh, you caught me, I have these feelings, Kind. it's just a no. <laughs> Once we get that excellent exchange, Kate and Pete do take a second to catch up. It seems that they had met previously and then both relocated since they knew each other. So uh, Kate jabs at the super secret South Dakota location. And then we can tell in response that this doesn't actually phase him. So at the end of this quick catch up, he says, so I should call you, right? And she says, call, don't call. It's the same as always. And that's the empowerment I love of mm -hmm. like, She's open to this relationship. She's neither going to come on to him super strong, nor, like, 
act ashamed of feeling sexual attraction. She's just like, yeah, I'm into you. If you have time, we can meet up. If you don't, uh, you know, we're not committed to each other. That's not an important thing to me. And I just feel, I feel, you know, and I'm very monogamous and that's just, it's just my nature. I just, that's the only way I can be. Yeah. Like I feel it, I feel empowered by it, even though it's not my way of being in the world. So I loved it. I, I totally agree. And I love that it's given that whole vibe by a woman because it's usually the man from there, Micah and Pete walk off together and Micah says the thief's name is Lenny Malone. That's JP, who we just talked about. And he has a sheet, meaning a rap sheet. I don't know if that's international slang, but it just refers here to a long list of criminal offenses, crimes that they have committed. Yeah. Pete starts to explain that he used to date Kate and Micah does not care. And it's like, no, 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 I get that. I'm more curious about what happened here, meaning Pete not catching the guy. Because she knows him. He's fast enough. He could have caught the guy. She's seen him chase down much bigger, stronger, faster people. Pete plays it off like nothing happened. But Micah gives him that narrow-eyed look she gives. But Pete saved by the bell. Uh, Farnsworth. (laughs) Yes. Basically, Artie does a quick check-in to make sure that nothing really serious is wrong. Because he says they're about to get out of the oven and into the fire. uh, Because as we get this very quick cut, we are at the warehouse where Artie and Claudia are already waiting and it takes less than a second for Benedict Valda to appear. So like the cut is really fast, but it's like, okay, you're done with this. Well, you got to come home because we've got something bigger at the warehouse. And I love when they don't immediately recognize Valda because we had seen him only interact with Artie. And Pete says, of our regions, Artie's joke, especially as an educator, <laughs> it's so good. Like our regions, and Artie says, "No, Pete, the South Dakota College Board of Regions." It's I loved it so much. Like originally, when I watched this show, I only thought the regions were in Warehouse 13, and then I went into higher ed, and I <laughs> had to train myself that they weren't like the Warehouse regions. And now I'm having to retrain myself that they are Warehouse agents, anyways, or regions. Yeah, no, I totally get it. Um, I do also like Micah's whole vibe throughout this whole scene. (laughs) Because when they come in and see Valda, Micah is just sort of having a fun time. They didn't get the artifact. They'll get back out there. She's not too worried about it. But Valda immediately is like, oh, you guys are back from losing another artifact. And like, just as really judgmental of them and Micah immediately is like I'm sorry who do you think you are and then we find out they're the regents and she just immediately regrets apparently the regents didn't used to visit during the first 30 years of Artie's tenure (laughs) but now they've been visiting because our team you know has a lot of uh crises and shenanigans but Valda explains that he has brought the agents back to the warehouse because of their repeated inability to protect the warehouse from what he calls unwanted scrutiny. Again, the vibes he's giving us and just his acting and his character is very intense, intimidating. So he says that the regents have decided to become more hands-on. And this immediately upsets Claudia, which makes perfect sense for a teenage girl to be like, you're going to be up in my business? Or she says something along those lines. Um, and that immediately makes Valda point out that she 
should consider herself on notice because her inclusion in the team is one of lively debate. Claudia would be like, you're coming into like my home and telling me I don't belong here. Like, excuse you. Or, you know, he's also picking on Pete and Micah, who I think she views as her older siblings and she is ready to defend them. Yes. And she says to Falda, hey, don't look at me. I'm just tech support. And he goes, yes, you are. And goes to hand her a thumb drive. But Artie takes it away because clearly he knows what it is. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Oh, Claudia does not react well to not immediately being able to know things. You know, the scene is fairly quick. Micah is in a rush to get back to Illinois. So they kind of get the info about Valda. They clear out and Micah is rushing Pete back. But Pete says he has a thing. And she's like put, put off by that. Like, what do you mean? Like, he never has a thing. He's allowed to have a thing. Her reaction was literally just... Sounds fake, but okay. Yeah. On its own, it wouldn't be as much of a big deal, but paired with everything else that happens in the episode, she's like, this is not right. Yeah. Right now, the only thing that's weird is that he didn't catch the guy and seems, yeah. and seems to have lied about it, but it's easy to write that off. But now he's like, oh, he has a thing now? I noted that it was weird that Pete didn't retort. He normally would have said something funny in response to that, but instead he notices something on the screen and sort of has to snap back to focus. And from there we have a quick cut to outside somewhere. Um, I had a hard time keeping track of whether or not this was in South Dakota or Illinois throughout the whole episode, but I think it's in South Dakota. I, I don't know, though. When he is there... Mrs. Frederick arrives. I do love having her in multiple scenes. Pete is very upfront with her. He says, keeping secrets from my team isn't my thing. And Mrs. F thinks that there's a rogue agent on the team and wants Pete to look into it. Pete's really, really not happy about it. And he starts questioning her decision. And she says, I know keeping secrets from your team isn't your thing, which makes you the least likely suspect. And then she looks at him and goes, have I chosen poorly? Which is a very Mrs. Frederick thing to say. And I, I like that this seems to indicate that Pete does know her pretty well at this point. More than he, I think, believes he knows her. Because I think that's something she really would say. Yeah, he knows what her orders would be like. And he knows she is the authority to listen to if he's been given this top secret mission. Yes. And she says, if you need to contact me, break the window on the end of some old building that she points at. He's like, I don't like this. And like helps her into a car, like gets the door for her. And I just thought that was so sweet as gentlemanly, like, I am very unhappy and I am gruff, but you are a person of authority and I am a gentleman. Here you go. I hope you are comfortable. <laughs> and then he peeks back into the car and says, hey, are we like friends now? And she just looks at him and drives off. Someone drives her away. It's not no ma'am though. R.I.P. So from there we go to the warehouse office where... Claudia breaks into the encrypted file adorably. She I, she's so cute. I love this. I watched this twice. I just reround it and watched the whole thing again just because it was so cute. I'm sure you noted so much of the dialogue, but mostly what I saw was that she 
eventually got to a file that said Donovan contingencies. This file can't be accessed without clearance code. And she said, look, it's encrypted. That's so cute. And then while typing goes chomp, 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 as if to say, just eating that code. Oh, I know. That's exactly what I pointed out. And on multiple watches, um, you can kind of put together that it was all about that flash drive. She wants to know what was given to Artie and why she can't see it. And as she does that, that's so cute, chomp, 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 num, and she goes into num, 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 <laughs> I remember, and I know we took that, I think, from Manga, uh, but we took it from some... Oh, I thought it was from Sesame Street. I thought it was from the Cookie Monster. A note from post-production. Jillian is correct. It seems we have taken this word from Sesame Street. It was very popular for a while to just say nom, 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 like as you were about to eat something or like, I'm hungry, nom, nom, nom. Like when I was in high school, we just said that. It was played perfectly. Like that's exactly who Claudia is and how she would react. She had not a doubt in her mind that she was going to find and access that information. And I think especially as a woman in tech, it's like, that's what you want to see is like, yeah, I can do this code thing. Are you joking me? From there, we go to Lakefield, Illinois, which we get on a cool Chiron on a moving train. I really enjoyed it. Within Lakefield, we go to Malone's apartment. Micah says it looks like Malone just took some clothes and ran. Nothing seemed like it was thrown by police. Nothing seemed too terribly out of place. And while she's looking around and doing her job, Pete is touching things. (laughs) He's playing with a basketball. Um, Micah tests a seemingly disconnected light switch. It's the world's squeakiest light switch, which really annoys Pete. And he jokes by saying, are you trying to pump electricity to the light? And she moves it up and down really fast while, like, making a face at him. And it's really cute and sisterly. Yes, and I would note, too, that we get a motif of, like, tapping or rhythm and the audio of the light like flip 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 is emphasized here and there's going to be other times throughout the episode where a similar motif happens so we will keep an eye out for it i also want to point out that the repeated flip on and off the sound we hear occurs when pete's back is to micah and we don't see her so when he turns to her kind of in a mood and makes that joke, she seems to be like, why are you so cranky? My theory is she wasn't actually doing that to the light beforehand. And I think, too, if we use the light switch, because there's other motifs, but if this is the first one we really notice, like, a light switch works by completing a circuit, and that's how an electric telegraph works. Like, it's gonna it's gonna touch and untouch. It's gonna break and... That's smart. If we're into, like, media technology, that that's a very smart move. Yes. Looking out the window... Pete spots Malone with the walking stick. He goes to turn around very quickly and freaks out when Micah is right behind him. And I like that that's the angle of the shot that we see because normally the way that these scenes are shot in this show is Pete looks at something, says, hey, Micah, and then we see Micah walking to him and joining. This has a very disjointed, out-of-sync feel, which... I do think reflects their partnership in this episode. Yes, absolutely. Instead of telling Micah that he saw Malone with the stick, he tells her he's going to go poke around into the garbage in case he finds something, which is a thing police officers do, even though it's gross. And he tells Micah, just finish looking up around here. 
she seems a little weirded out that he felt the need to do that right now, but she agrees. It just adds to her growing literal list of concerns, and he runs downstairs. Outside, he carries a Tesla and hides behind a corner when he sees Malone with Valda. Dun, dun, dun! Yes! Handing off an envelope to Valda, which is the worst. This is actually something I truly love about this show, is this was so smart. Because seeing Mark Shepard play a character that seems to be very double-dealing feels natural to us as an audience that has been trained to view him in this way for so long. I agree completely. So, he sees this exchange... But right at that moment, Micah comes after him and is shouting like, Pete, where are you? There's a break in between here, and now we're in Act 3. Thank you, Jill. This alerts Malone that the agents are after him, and so Pete has to act fast. He Teslas Malone. Malone goes down, and then Pete, kind of thinking fast, is like, well, I can't hide this from Micah, so he goes running out, finds Micah and says, like, Micah, I've got him, and is, like, ready to lead Micah back to Malone. And they quickly arrive back in that, like, dumpster site, but no one is there. And Pete is very shady and slips up about it because Micah's like, well, was he alone? Um, Or was he with someone? And, like, Pete immediately is like, yeah, I mean, no, like. And Pete seems genuinely freaked out that Malone's yeah. not there. He he doesn't seem to be lying about the fact that he saw Malone, but he does seem to be hiding something. Back in the ambiguous outside place, Pete <laughs> meets with a very distressed-looking Mrs. Frederick. We know she's distressed because of some finger taps. It's not just the sound effect. It's like, okay, they're emphasizing this for some reason. And she cautions Pete that no, they cannot alert the others, even though like now Micah is sort of aware that something is up. And the reasoning is because she says the regents have kill authority on like people who they deem to be a threat or whatever. And like, they have to be really sure and they have to be really safe about who to trust. And it all makes me very nervous. Like, especially even, even though I know how it ends, I remember feeling really distressed by this. And even just getting immersed in the episode for a second or third or 15th view, it's like, <laughs> this is so stressful. Like, you don't want your team to be in danger and you don't want to be lying or hiding danger from them. Yes, but this time it made me stressed for a different reason. Because to me, this was the first major red flag that something was wrong at large. Not just we've uncovered something with Valda, but something seems wrong and Mrs. Frederick is involved somehow. Because I don't believe that the regents have kill authority over anyone. They didn't kill HG, they didn't kill McPherson, they bronzed them, they bronze people, and I don't think that it's an individual regent can make a unilateral decision like that. I think at one point, Artie even said, the warehouse doesn't kill people. But there is the whole side thing, the B-plot with Claudia that we're about to get. I have thoughts about that okay. and why there's 
kill information on there. Mrs. Frederick tells him to be patient, and he roughly says he's not good at patience, but he still, again, is a gentleman and helps her into the car. And then I just wrote, I love Pete. Um, And then in response to him saying, I'm not good at being patient, Mrs. Frederick replies, challenge yourself. (laughs) I think that's very Mrs. Frederick. It is. I think Pete gets her. Because, as I've said before, there are a lot of parallels between Micah and Mrs. Frederick. I mean, essentially, Mrs. Frederick is a very hardened version of Micah. And from there, we go to the B&B dining area. Micah asks Pete where he has been. And we can tell right away that she has been really busy going over the evidence from Malone's apartment. So I guess to answer your question, that um, creepy outside place must be in South Dakota. And she's doing her detective work. She starts talking in the first person as Malone saying, okay, so say I'm Malone, you know, I'm thinking this, I have the walking stick. And as she's going over, you know, kind of putting herself in his shoes, she reaches out and grabs a very well-placed Twizzler. This one is a bit more organic than most. If you're like a high school film student, the thing that always gives it away as product placement is like that perfect angle of the whole package. Yep. A direct bird's eye overhead shot of like the Twizzlers laying on the table. And you're like, this isn't the film language of Warehouse 13. Like what is going on? So funny. But, you know, I actually, I like the way she incorporates it in. She peels off the Twizzler. She has it in her hand, and she's kind of, like, talking about the walking stick. And Pete's like, huh, is that the walking stick? She says, wait a minute. If he grabbed some things and ran, why would he come back to his apartment? Did he forget something? And it just shows that, like, one storyline isn't really matching what we know to be true. For me, I won't call this a red flag. It's a yellow flag. Micah's noticing flaws in Pete's behavior and also kind of noticing them in Pete's logic in a way that he's not noticing. That's something I had not noticed. So that's when Pete asks if Micah has checked the phone and the last number that Malone dialed, and she didn't. So he goes to plug it into the phone jack. This is all very funny to me because she's like, you know, the phone jack's over there. She doesn't laugh. I'm laughing because, like, I have a phone jack in my apartment, but, like, the couch is in front of it. Like, we don't use phones anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking at my phone jack right now because you've brought it up, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's just been in my room the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) So he dials back, uh, redial, and gets a specific motel that has a name that is clearly significant because that's where Malone would be headed But when Micah asks, he says, oh, it was takeout. And this lie just comes off as an obvious lie to me. And I I think it's supposed to. Yeah, and he takes the battery pack out of the phone, and I'm not really sure why, but I think maybe it's to prevent Micah from checking up on him. 
But I don't, I don't know because she could obviously just open it and be like, uh, the batteries aren't there. How did you check the number? I, I don't understand what that was about. Yeah, I was thinking that maybe his logic isn't logical. Like, maybe he's like, oh, Micah will never uh, get the phone to work without a battery. And, like, Micah's a very intelligent person. She will absolutely figure that out. So, yeah, Micah's noticing something is up, and that's when she notices some pictures. She notices specifically the evidence photo where um, they saw him alone out on the street, and it's in front of a liquor store. And, like, the big sign liquor is right there. And we did get that uh, pretty clearly in in the shot when we watched it, but now we see that it's significant and why. And then she starts having flashbacks of, like when Pete went outside to go after Malone, he was running towards that liquor store and he's been behaving strangely throughout. And she's seeing, I forget each flashback, but there's several of them. We've seen Micah make a lot of connections of, ah, yes, I remember this one thing without following her logic through to how she got there. And I think the flashbacks were helpful for people with who can see like, oh yeah, she's not just being Sherlock Holmes, which is like, oh yes, you didn't know this this one thing, like on page five, you know, it makes it like, okay, we are seeing inside her head in an episode that's very focused on what's going on inside of Pete's head. I totally see now that you've said that. So the obvious conclusion that she comes to is the belief that Pete is drinking again. Yes, but we do get a scene before she actually says that out loud. Yes, in the warehouse office. Claudia approaches Artie, triumphant with the paper she has found, except I guess triumphant's the wrong word because she is more angered and upset. Artie says, well, you weren't supposed to see it. And she says, well, if that's the case, you shouldn't have put it on a computer. Like, he knew (laughs) she was gonna get it. Um, and she says, and this is the best thing. Yes. That's like me leaving a cake out with a sign on it that says, not for Artie. And then Artie, <laughs> before addressing the really serious issue, Artie says, that was one time. I know. I love it. And that's what saves it from being like, I'll call it like a body negative joke of like a generalization of a body type. This is like, no, this is an arty specific problem. Right, like I see a whole story that <laughs> definitely happens. Yeah. And it, it also helps, yeah, lighten the mood of this serious thing, um, as does the next line, which Artie is like, don't you have a boyfriend you could be bothering instead of me? And he didn't know that Todd dumped her. And he he says, do you want me to call him? I just love him. I like that that's his instinctive response. Like, oh, no, I can talk him out of this. You're clearly wonderful. Like, it's not what he should actually Aww. do, but I love that that's his instinct. Claudia <laughs> gets him to focus on the issue at hand, which is that... She has found a list of ways to kill her. And Artie says, well, they're not all killing. They include erasing her memory or dropping her in a non-English speaking country. She says that doesn't make her feel any better. But I love, like, he kind of trails off, like, well, but, you know, the point is that you would, it would just stall for time. Like, you would find your way out of the non-English speaking country. (laughs) Yes. 
Well, and see, that is what I want to talk about that came up earlier. Because okay. I believe that Artie was about to say, well, like, it's not like it's lists to kill you. Because I don't think he believed, like, oh, this is a list of ways to kill you. But we know how Artie's brain works. He thinks, like, ten steps ahead, but his mouth doesn't get there fast enough. What I think happened, given the entire scope of this episode, is Valda wanted to hand this to Claudia and be like, ah, take a look at this, and sort of a scare straight sort of situation of like Jillian, behave you're so smart <laughs> this is such a good plan this is so, this is makes way more sense than it act because it didn't make sense to me that they're gonna kill pete claudia Artie, micah oh sorry i interrupted you to tell you <laughs> how amazing you are and how much i love you thank you so yeah my thought was like when Artie took it thinking it was gonna be just the list of ways to get rid of you you know like bronzing <laughs> is one he just i'm sure he was like we've got other things i'll show it to her and explain it after we get this artifact it is sort of getting funny um and as the conversation unfolds but it doesn't have time to really reach the haha funny part because that's when micah comes in and her delivery of this line and the worry on her face is like so heartbreaking because she says, I think that Pete is drinking again. And I know oh. it's so sad because she's upset about it. And I had so many feelings about this because going into heavy fiends, I'm not sure that's a good way to handle it, but I honestly don't know because the only person who I personally know who has dealt with addiction issues was in recovery and clean and sober by the time I got to know that person. So my instinct is maybe she should have talked to Pete first and said, hey, I've noticed some weird behavior. Have you been drinking again? It's okay, you can tell me. But maybe that's just not the right way at all to do things. Maybe going to someone else and doing what she does, which leads us into our next scene, which is an intervention in the B&B. Maybe that's the right way to handle it. I just don't know. So if you do know or have resources, please let us know. When I create the show notes for this episode, I'll put what information I can find in the heavy theme section of the show notes. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I don't know either. We'll make sure to have resources. And remember, too, that Eddie has talked very openly about his struggles with alcohol addiction and um, that there is a light at the end of that tunnel because he's still sober today and he's very proud of it. Because yes. that was the other thing is when we get to the next scene, the heartbreak, if you really are sober and your friends think you're not, like, oh, like that accomplishment and the way that Eddie, as well as Pete, they have to fight for that every day. Like addiction is a disease that you never don't have. And it's just like, Oh, to accuse him breaks my heart. I know, it's and like so rough. It's so upsetting, I think, because it doesn't just take away that achievement, but it takes it calls into question his reliability, which is really upsetting because that's something that he prides himself on, and that's what he's fighting for at this very moment is to be the guy who puts his team first, and he's taking this huge personal sacrifice in order to put his team first. Before we move on entirely from that kind of discussion, I just want to say that we have talked about resources before for people who are struggling with addiction. Those are still up in our show notes for previous episodes. 
But because this deals with Micah's perspective of being a loved one of someone who deals with addiction issues, until I get those resources up in the show notes, I do want to let everyone know that Al-Anon, which is different than Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon is its own thing, and that's a resource for people who are children and loved ones of people with addiction issues, and I highly encourage you to check them out. That's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, that's huge, right? If, if your partner, family member, or even, you know, close friend has those issues, sometimes you need support too. Mm-hmm. So yes, moving forward. That moves us to Pete's support group. And actually, this reminded me, Jill, unfortunately, of a very popular TV show on A&E at this time called Intervention. Yeah, you don't need that televised. I am not a psychologist. I do not deal with addiction. I don't know anything. So don't, you know, listen to me. But my response to an intervention is rooted in this 2000s, 2010s era bad television show that just, it was claiming to provide help, but I think provided hurt and visibility to people who needed privacy and comfort rather than visibility and shame. Yeah, and like also just while we're here, the whole point of an intervention is to hopefully help someone realize that they've hit rock bottom, which is the point where you are before you either can only go up or you're dead. Televising that is, for me, inherently wrong because by its very nature, it's that person's lowest point in life. Would you want your worst moment on your worst day of life televised? Because these people are actively hoping that they can make you realize this is your worst moment, and then also having it just out there forever. I hate it. I hate it. Yeah, and I think you've pointed out something good, which again, not a professional, but like I think that dealing with the relapse even if that was what happened, would be a different psychological and social situation. Like, he's in a totally different place. A relapse is a different place than rock bottom, like, Mm -hmm. by a long shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still not great, and you still, it doesn't mean that you get to just keep doing it, obviously, but it's very different. It's, okay, you veered off the path, and we're just going to help you get back on. Anyways, we support you on whatever journey you or family loved ones are on if you know you're dealing with a lifelong journey and struggle to be your best and stay sober yes so back to the actual scene pete gets very upset he sort of has an outburst and then reins himself in he says in eight years he's not even had a virgin daiquiri so micah says if you're not drinking then what's up because something clearly is up and he just goes, I'm not drinking, and leaves. Now, outside in the creepy place, Pete throws a big old rock and breaks that window. And he gets a call immediately. He assumes it's Mrs. Frederick and is surprised to hear Valda's voice. It's so scary! I honestly think the casting here goes an incredibly long way to selling the whole story. So over the phone, Valda directs him to a manila envelope that has several pictures of Pete when he last met with Mrs. Frederick, and Pete's very not happy. Valda says he has a man watching her through the scope of a rifle, which is very scary, and I believe that more than I believe 
regents having the power to kill people who they think have gone out of line. He threatens to kill the whole team and Mrs. Frederick if the next time he calls, Pete doesn't turn up Malone. And Pete goes nuclear. In retrospect, once we get the whole episode, Pete's behavior is getting more extreme. But I completely believe that if you threatened the life of his whole team, that he would go to nuclear. Oh, Because he is protective and loyal, and their lives mean more than his own. And so, you know, he yells, basically, at Valda. He says, game on. And we get a really fantastic music cue. Yes. The um, Amazon little thing tells you that it is a song called The Mission, which is appropriate, by a band called Pucifer, which that name just is, I'm sorry, not, not my favorite. It's a gross name. We cut to Pete in his bedroom, packing a bag. He's clearly getting out of town. But what alarmed me in that little montage was that he was not bringing a Tesla. He was bringing a real gun and lots of bullets, and that's scary. And he leaves a note on the wall next to his door that says, Don't follow me. Watch your backs. Now, this is a very serious scene, but I want to take a moment for my segment, Words Words on on Surfaces. surfaces. I love all words on surfaces. But one I especially love is characters' handwriting. Yes! I noted it too! I love asking myself, did a character write that? Or was it, you know, a prop manager or somebody? Or, in my experience also, they will very often grab the nearest extra and say, hey, (laughs) can you write something really fast? We need it to be rushed. And you're like okay and you try to be like okay i'm gonna write this neatly so it can be read but no it needs to be rushed and you sort of i i don't think that's what happened here because there's not a lot of extras around but it occurs and i'm sure we don't have a large crossover with viewers of the bachelor but i can (laughs) personally attest that none of the notes from the bachelor on the bachelor are written by the bachelor but this i did some sleuthing I looked up autographs by Eddie McClintock with actual, <laughs> like, notes on them. So, like, you know, stay golden, you know, Eddie McClintock or whatever. And I did not have a lot of evidence. But based on the shape of the exclamation points and the uppercase E, even when things are lowercase, and he has a really long T, I suspect it is actually Eddie McClintock's handwriting. And I mean intrigued by the fact that he did not use an apostrophe in don't. The distinctive features were the same between Eddie's autographs and this note. That's awesome. And they might have had him write it like during the scene. You just don't know. I hope it's true. What stuck out to me was the words that were emphasized. (laughs) Watch was like by far the largest word on that paper. And I was like, I I would have emphasized like, don't follow or something, but you know, whatever. But that's his intense, like anxiety. Like, cause he also double underlines your backs. Yeah. And that's, that's like, if we did some sort of, and I do think that actually handwriting analysis as a forensic science has been debunked. So like, that's no longer a thing that people take seriously. It's been debunked in terms of 
criminal court. It does have some merit in finding things. It's not completely without merit, but it, it's not a hard science. The your backs being emphasized also suggests to me that like the backstabbing and the two-facedness, yeah. like, that's what's first and foremost in his head. Yes. This has been Words on Surfaces. Yay! Words on Surfaces! Um, ah, you sing it way better. <laughs> thanks. From there, we go to the warehouse office where the team is already looking for him. And Micah enters with his note and we go out. And when we come back Ooh. for Act 4, we are in Lakefield at a payphone where Pete says he wants to talk to Kate leaves a message and says to find Benedict Valdo's address. And then he hangs up and calls the motel they referred to earlier. Payphone, another great obsolete media technology. That's all I have to say. I think it was obsolete at the time, but we know he didn't bring his phone because then obviously Claudia would be able to track him. Pete quickly gets to the motel and he wait, hides you know, in wait for Malone and it takes zero seconds for him to get Malone, who is, who is a smaller guy, on the ground. And his shoe is on Malone's neck. And he is threatening him really hard and really scary. Um, so he's trying to figure out where Valda is. And Malone is totally willing to give up the walking stick. But he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He even says, he says you're crazy to Pete. So he says he doesn't have any information about Valda. He, like, doesn't know what Pete's talking about. You're right. Absolutely. Um, but he does tell him exactly where the cane is. Pete doesn't even say anything like, where's the cane? He's like, where is it? And he's like, it's, it's under the bed. Pete grabs it and then leaves with uh, Malone handcuffed to a radiator. After that, we go to a cafe in Chicago where Pete is waiting to meet somebody and a kid walks along the like the outdoor um, patio of the restaurant and is tapping a stick. And again, we get this heavy emphasis on the rhythm and the tapping. Pete is waiting to place an order. Kate uh, arrives and Pete orders coffee, but Kate's like, you know, you should probably have decaf. I would like for you to note that. He says, do you want coffee? Then she says decaf, and then he says we'll take two. I think that's important <gasps> for something that happens later. That is important yes. for something that happens later. And it's also, so what was important to me was that the, the, the server looks really worried about him and even asks him, like, are you feeling okay? Um, and when he orders two and he just says, yeah, two of those, like, you know, she, she goes away. Um, and we get a moment to focus on Pete and Kate. So Kate asks for information about, like, what's up with this Valda guy? And she says she didn't get any information. He doesn't even exist. But ever since she started poking into his whereabouts, her place was trash, her phone was bugged, like, pe people are after her. Uh, they're, they're following her and, like, sending her a message that, like, this was a bad move. And Pete is clearly worried, but I love her response. Um, she's like, don't worry, I'm a big girl. Yeah. And I like that because she's not, like, diminishing the fact that he's her friend and he, he cares and worries. However, she says Pete has to let her in on what's going on 
because he has now roped her into his super secret service business. And uh, the way that, that this conversation unfolds really cracks me up because it seems very X-Files to me and I love it. There's a, a good reference in there. I am pretty sure, I mean, I know you well enough to surmise that you probably have not seen The Usual Suspects. I have not, but I actually had to Google Kaiser Sose okay. because I have not. Yes. I would just like to say, as someone who has viewed this movie very recently and very against my will, um, <laughs> much like this storyline, it's scary as heck at first, but upon closer inspection, it makes no sense. <laughs> and you mean the storyline in Pete's mind. Yes. Because the storyline of this episode of television makes sense. But yes. The storyline that Pete is following does not actually make sense. Yes. Yes. Um, so, yeah, Pete says he's in containment of threats to the planet. Which is um, true, but pretty dramatic. And that's the thing, too, is because it's like that, of course, when you explain it that way, is going to sound like very tin hat aliens, which is exactly what he says. And it's in that moment where the server confusedly places two cups of coffee in front of him. Then would you like to point out what I think you're about to point out? Yes, because Pete takes a sip and he's already very agitated and he's like, and I don't think this is decaf, which it wouldn't be because Pete didn't order decaf. He ordered two of the coffee, which he said earlier. Um, yes. Then things get flirty, and I laughed really hard because this whole scene seemed very James Bond to me. Like, meet with oh, your contact in, like, illicit locations. And you know what you always have in James Bond movies is Bond girls. So she mentions, I liked you better when you were pantsless. And he goes, I can be imminently pantsless. And then we cut to an apartment where... Kate and Pete are about to get it on. And I'm honestly, I'm so down. Yes. Um, but as they're getting it on, Micah bursts in with her gun. And the first thing that came across as weird to me is that uh, she says, you know, Logan, get out of here, which is Officer Kate Logan. Mm -hmm. And Kate just gets up and leaves. And my thought was... That if you are, I mean, even if all three of you are law enforcement, which you are, if someone comes in with a gun and you are a trained cop, you don't leave your friend alone with another person with a gun, even if it's their partner. Like, Micah bursts in with a gun, worried about Pete, and Kate's like, okay, I'm out of here, and she just grabs her coat and goes. Yes, I had a couple thoughts about this. Okay. But what I noticed was it was a nice touch to have Micah show up, like to actually have Micah there, because we are inclined to trust Micah at this point. We know something is off with Pete, but we also know that Micah was trying to find him. This all seems very real and weird, and I was sort of able, when I first watched it, to write off the weirdness of Kate going away, because... Okay. Because it was just all happening so fast. And you're like, okay, well, we're getting to the end, so it makes sense. I also want to say, again, I'm I'm not really a shipper-type person, but I can understand why we, we, again, we validate all readings of the show. Personally, I read Micah as very queer, 
but I can't understand why someone who does see her with Pete would have an affirming view of that relationship in this scene because, oh, Pete's about to have sexy times with a lady and then suddenly he imagines Micah entering. I get it. I don't agree with it, but I get it. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. And that's, yeah, I see if it's like a a deep manifestation of Pete's unconscious, then like, yeah, Yeah. maybe he is thinking about the what if. I see that. Yeah, Um, it's not my reading, but we do validate all readings here, and that's totally okay. Yes. As Micah confronts Pete, the camera work is kind of like choppy, and the sound is emphasizing the sort of rhythm as Micah is trying to talk sense into Pete. She says he's gone AWOL, Mrs. Frederick is missing, and Valda is now calling the shots, and Valda thinks that Pete has something to do with all of, you know, Mrs. Frederick is gone and everything is going awry. And Pete does open up here and says, no, 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 Valda is who I'm after. But Micah says she has her orders and she doesn't want to make this happen the hard way. And again, I think in many shows with strong action heroes, um, the ultimate showdown, and we saw this a little bit with the Alice episode, is like, can you know, our two protagonists, they're on the same team, but what if they fought each other? Who's stronger? Who would win? Like, my bets are on Micah. Every time. You don't want me to do this the hard way. Like, I can take you out. And I love that. Unfortunately, uh, Pete sort of pretends to agree in order to disarm her. And when she turns away, he has that walking stick and he uses it. Conveniently, um, she flies backwards but lands on the bed. Which I don't think is how physics would work. No, it doesn't make sense to me at all. But that's how the scene, it's like the 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 thunder effect seems to knock you prone. Like, it doesn't seem to knock you side to side and make you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. I agree. And the other red flag for me here in this scene, because this is where things start to become a bit too much, is I don't believe that Micah would approach that situation and say, I have my orders. I think that given new information, 100% of the time she would side with Pete. 100% of the time. Oh, absolutely. I think if Pete says, it's Valda, he is against us, she's way more likely to trust Pete than Valda. She only met Valda today. Like... Yeah, and she's a rule follower, but she's not, like, a mindless rule follower. She has a mind of her own. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I guess it does, so it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me that then um, he goes rushing out to escape from Micah, and Kate just happens to be screeching up. But I suppose we could say that she she was just leaving the apartment and happens to be driving right there as he leaving too but she's like get in Latimer get in and it's like wow this really escalated like I sort of get it because she ran out right away so she might have been prepared for him to run out I guess you're right she was prepared for him to escape possibly yeah her her money was not on Micah I guess my money was always on like Micah would take him out it was just never 100% but But, he doesn't know that yes and so Pete's about to get into the car Micah says, hey, I'm trying to keep you alive. And that's when Pete notices 
an earpiece and hears someone say, take the shot. And and he sort of sees a sniper on a roof. Mm-hmm. I personally love that his brain wouldn't allow him to imagine Micah taking the shot. Aww. You're right. I hadn't thought of that. She was already there with the gun. They didn't need to add that other element. But he knows, just as we know, that if there was a shadow of a doubt of anything that Pete was a good person, Micah wouldn't ever forgive herself. Her whole thing was that she lost a partner. And it made her really jaded. She would never, ever hurt him. And things sort of get, not in this scene, but in, like, a scene or two, we do learn that things aren't really lining up with reality. And I think it was a smart choice for them to reveal that sooner rather than later, instead of, like, the very end of the episode. Well, can I ask, because I have read it differently, you think that the sniper is aiming for Pete and hits Kate? I think the sniper is aiming for the car to not get away. Which is why she says... Pete, don't get in the car. I'm trying to keep you alive. So I think that the thought process was stop the car from going away. And then it just didn't make sense anymore. So many things with... And Artie explains it later. I'm going to jump ahead slightly of saying it's like your brain trying to reach into your past in the same way it would in a dream, trying to make sense of things. And then if you dig super hard into a dream, dreams don't make sense. So... I, th- I think mostly the fear was someone's going to get shot. I think that if Pete got in the car in his brain, he would have gotten shot. And so he was about to, and someone took the shot and it hit Kate. I don't know. That's what I thought. Okay. I mean, I just assumed that the sniper was told to stop the, stop the getaway at all costs, and he had to shoot Kate to stop that. I, I didn't think that the plan was to shoot Kate, but I thought a military grade government grade sniper they're gonna hit their mark that's why she gets hit like in the head and goes straight dead like yeah a sniper just i only am getting this from ncis but like a military sniper they're like the best marks people in the whole world mm-hmm. so yes uh the, 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 the other thing i would point out for my personal reaction was is that reminds me of an episode of Criminal Minds where a war veteran goes into a delusion. And that episode is about PTSD, which I'm not qualified to talk about, but it causes me a lot of stress and it brings up this idea of sort of past traumas related to a high stress career and, um, you know, a military background and all of this like constant danger, like, It's like a really emotional... I remember the episode you're talking about. Also, just to be clear, as someone with PTSD, like any other mental illness or mental health struggle, it does not make you violent. And people who have uh, flashbacks and relive certain experiences do not turn outward, which was my major problem with that episode. Oh yeah. So there's two there's two episodes and I might have actually been hodgepodging them in my mind. The one I was thinking of was uh Dorado Falls, mm-hmm. but the one that's really bad uh which really sort of negatively depicts PTSD is called Distress and that's actually more similar to this one. Mm-hmm. Um anyways, sorry. I am a huge Criminal Minds uh fan and the longest fan fiction I ever wrote was Criminal Minds. 
<laughs> um, so right after the sniper kills Kate, we enter what is clearly the Chicago field office. Micah is striding purposefully through the hall. Someone tries to stop her. She holds up her badge and keeps walking. And she arrives in Kate's office where Kate is alive and fine and in a different outfit entirely. And Micah is very emotional and says, Pete's in trouble. And also, I noticed that Kate had a picture of Obama in her office, and I just felt such a great sense of relief. <laughs> just retroactive. Well, yeah. So, anyway, from there, we go out on a box and then come back for Act 5. Woohoo! So, after this commercial, Micah is explaining to Kate that Pete is trapped in a paranoid delusion. And they haven't figured out the details of the delusion, but they say he must have been affected by something on a mission, um, which, yeah, that could give us some interesting, you know, science fiction exposure questions. But uh, Micah says to Kate, because Kate's like, why, why me? Micah says two reasons. One, we know Pete called you, so you're a part of his delusion. But number two... Pete is currently in Chicago, which is your turf. You're the Chicago field office. And <laughs> Micah explains that she has some video or she, she shows some video that proves how Kate is a part of this delusion. So she quickly puts in a USB to show Kate her evidence. And Kate's like, what is he doing? And Micah's like, well, it he's kissing you or he thinks he's kissing you. And this is where it all makes sense. He's at the cafe. He's ordered two cups of non-decaf. He's totally by himself and he's kissing the air. <laughs> and he's like passionately kissing the air the way that like, if you were in middle school and you used to like grab your own shoulders and pretend yes. you never do that. Of course. Everyone you turn has. around and like you pretend you're making out so like it's like the fake makeout it looks so over the top and it's so funny that commitment we talk a lot about Eddie's skills when he really digs into the emotional stuff like he did was it burnout or implosion i think it was burnout it was um when he did that scream that deep level of commitment as an actor and reaching those places but this to me was on that same level of acting ability, just to really go for it, to shoot that scene, first of all, twice, because he had to shoot it with someone and then without someone, and then <laughs> just so truly commit to being in love with that just blank space. Totally believable. It's like he thinks he's kissing someone. Like, he totally does. He's going for it. That's when they have the conversation where Kate's like, well, it could be you. And the logic is wonderful. It's like, well, you're his partner. You're a beautiful woman. Like, couldn't he be kissing out with you? And Micah's like, no. Yeah, Kate just doesn't get their dynamic. She's just like, Micah's just like, no, it's it's definitely you. And we all know it's definitely Kate. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. And I like that because I did want to acknowledge people who ship the other way earlier. But I think that for you and I and the way that we view the series, it definitely, it's just not even a possibility. They just don't yeah. see each other that way. Uh, we don't want to invalidate anybody and we don't want to invalidate like bi or pansexuality if you genuinely, you know, you might be in love with one person one day and a few years later... 
you're in love with a different person of a different gender. Like that happens. That's totally okay. Um, but just totally this normal. relationship yeah. is so sibling like that <laughs> when Kate suggests that it could be Micah. It, it's not the, oh, I'm uncomfortable with that suggestion, sort of, I don't want to think about that kind of thing that you see in a lot of other shows that have a male and female lead in it. This is, she physically recoils, then laughs, and then it just goes, <laughs> highly doubtful. Like, no, no, no. I read that too, highly doubtful. Like, what a good response. And again, it's not like, it's not like, an ew gross response it's just like no that makes no sense exactly she's like he is in a delusion so maybe but highly (laughs) doubtful um and so then she and micah share a look but they're kind of on the same page then regarding valda kate seems to be on board and understanding everything so she does hand micah a piece of paper that she immediately shows to Artie on a farnsworth call this is that Pete was asking for information on Valda's address. Yeah, they show the note to Artie on the Farnsworth call, and Artie responds by explaining that Pete's mind is scrambling together details from his real life to create the delusion. And I love your description of that being a dream. I'm really glad they decided to reveal this now and not just like solve everything and then be like, oh, Pete, this is what happened. I'm going to explain it to you. Because first of all, yeah, that's bad storytelling to just sort of have the it's all a dream thing. But the amount of inconsistencies in character and logic were building up to be too much for us to continue to believe. Exactly. Micah is like, well, maybe this started with the walking stick. Like, we know he was affected by that and he has it. But Artie says, no, uh, Malone wasn't affected by it. It didn't make Malone, you know, have this response. So Artie thinks it must have been something else at the museum. And this leads Micah to use her photographic memory to walk through all the things that Pete touched at the museum. So I love that she defends herself by saying, well, I didn't know there would be two artifacts in the same place, which, like, I actually think is a valid point because... We were under the impression that artifacts are rare, but actually Artie is like, it's a museum. Like everything there has a extreme history wrought with emotion. Like I actually love this as a metaphor for history. Like you go to a museum and everything there was historically significant. And like everything there is wrought with a past. And like you can never show up at a museum and be like, well, that thing is probably not important. Like, they're all important. (laughs) Um, And so they continue to kind of back and forth where she is describing the things he has touched. And Artie's like, how could you not stop him? Blah, blah, blah. And she says a a lot of funny things, but my favorite was Artie. It's Pete. It's a win when he doesn't lick anything. Yes, I love that. And Jack Kenny, in our interview, actually brought up that line uh, for something in reference to season five. That is very much Pete's personality and also just very much Eddie's personality, and I love it. And so here's what I love is you made the Bob Goodman Elementary connection, and Elementary did premiere one year after this, so it's not like correlation causation. But 
We began with the Sherlock Holmes pipe and the impression uh, Pete says, like, nothing gets past Sherlock Latimer. Like, that's a part of this museum episode. And then when we refer back to it, it's a win when he doesn't lick anything. If you have seen Elementary, the very first episode, or I can't remember if it's, it's a two-parter, but it's the first, the first, you know, pilot of Elementary, that Sherlock Holmes goes down and starts licking things on the ground. And that's like a part of his process. And well, Pete is not actually a Sherlock Holmes figure, but I love it and I see it and I want to give it to all of you. Yes, I love it too. Thank you so much for making that connection. So Artie has like a list all the things that Pete interacted with. And he stops Micah when she mentions the telegraph. And he goes to the card catalog that we have pointed out many a time on this show before, uh, theorizing what it could be about. And I think this gives us as clear an answer as we're ever going to get about the card catalog, which is it's where they file away things that they're pretty sure could be artifacts, but that they don't have in the warehouse for like a quick reference. And he does pull out a card that relates to the telegraph and the information that is on the card beside the telegraph in the museum. Uh, he mumbles through most of it, reading it to himself. But the vital information is that it was a military telegraph and every soldier in the place where the telegraph was from went violently insane. But it hasn't affected anyone since. It's Miranda in post-production. Well, first of all, we recorded this episode uh, exactly one year ago, before the crisis came. Um, so Jillian was sounding sick, but she's definitely not sick in uh, real life right now. And then you can also tell I was having tech problems. That was related to my internet. That's uh, I have a beautiful microphone and everything, so we definitely have gotten that fixed by now. And I'm sorry for the low quality on that. Um, unfortunately, the reason you're hearing me instead of our artifact expert is because my recording app did not work on January 14th of 2019 when I recorded with my friend Courtney. So I only have my side of that conversation, which is not useful to us. So anyways, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to go ahead and release the first hour and a half right now uh, to get everybody excited. And then hopefully within seven to ten days... Um, I can release the second 40 minutes with the splices from my friend Courtney actually in there because I don't want to make you wait any longer. I know I already ran late here. It's been so challenging but fun and wonderful getting back into podcasting when we were in such a role. I was in such a zone for season one and like knew what I was doing and now it's kind of like learning it all over again after being uh, eviscerated by a dissertation. <laughs> um, but anyways, I'm talking too much now. Enjoy this episode. Come back super soon. Follow us on Twitter. You will have a second half ASAP and never blame Jillian for anything. Anything that goes wrong is always my fault. We love you. We will talk to you soon. And uh, yeah.